This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss your cognitive health with naturopath Dr. Colleen Hartwick. We'll find out about a proactive approach to energy management with Professor Joseph Gibbons. We'll explore the top water safety tips with clinical psychologist Dr. Barbara Morangello. And lastly, we'll learn about your vagus nerve, stress, and fatigue with Dr. Greg Hammer. Before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot. People who contract COVID-19 but never develop symptoms, the so-called super dodgers, may have a genetic ace up their sleeve. They're more than twice as likely as those who become symptomatic to carry a specific gene variation that helps them obliterate the virus, according to a new study led by UC San Francisco researchers. The paper, published on July 19th in Nature, offers the first evidence that there's a genetic basis for asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2. The research helps to solve the mystery of why some people can be infected without ever getting sick from COVID-19. Memories can be as tricky to hold on to for machines as they can be for humans. To help understand why AI develop holes in their cognitive processes, electrical engineers at The Ohio State University have analyzed how much a process called continual learning impacts their overall performance. Continual learning is when a computer is trained to continuously learn a sequence of tasks using its accumulated knowledge from old tasks to better learn new tasks. The researchers found that in the same way that people might struggle to recall contrasting facts about similar scenarios, but remember inherently different situations with ease, artificial neural networks can recall information better when faced with diverse tasks in succession instead of ones that share similar features. Female killer whales live up to 90 years in the wild, and most live an average of 22 years after menopause. Scientists have long wondered why humans and some whale species spend a significant portion of their lives not reproducing. Previous studies show that even after having their last calf, killer whale mothers take care of their families by sharing the fish they catch. Now, in a study published on July 20th in the journal Current Biology, researchers note that these mothers can also provide social support to their sons by protecting them from being injured by other orcas. Who knew? Killer whales are mama boys. I'll be joined by Dr. Colleen Hartwick, ND, in a moment. But first, a little bit of business. If you're looking for premium natural products, choose New Roots Herbal, proudly Canadian and family-owned for over 35 years. What really sets them apart is their dedication to quality. They source only the highest quality ingredients and test each one in a state-of-the-art ISO-accredited lab. You get the purity and potency you expect. Available exclusively at fine health food stores. To learn more or find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com. 
Dr. Colleen Hartwick is a licensed naturopathic physician who's been in private practice since 2012 in Campbell River, BC. Dr. Hartwick has a special interest in trauma as it pertains to physical illness, and as such, her practice focuses on mental health. In addition, she's passionate about sharing her knowledge and has been a part-time instructor at the Canadian School for Nutrition since 2015 and recently began publishing educational articles with naturopathic currents. Welcome back to the show, Doctor. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me back. I'm really excited to be here again. Yeah. So I can't remember the last time that you were on the show. Actually, that's not true. I, re- I, rem- I remember perfectly, but we're going to talk about memory loss today, right? Oh, well, that's good timing. I also can't, I'm a little fuzzy on the details. I think it might have been February or March. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, let's talk about what we can both do about memory today. <laughs> okay. So I'm not getting any younger. Can you explain why memory loss becomes more common as we age? Uh, there's lots of reasons to consider why that seems to happen. You know, there's the natural declines in, you know, brain shape and structure that happens with age, reductions in blood flow that could be the result of, like, lots of inflammation, maybe issues with managing your uh, blood sugar, potential for, you know, medication side effects. Perhaps years of imbibing in alcohol, which we know is pretty neurotoxic. The fact that there's a lot of people with varying degrees of hypothyroidism, and thyroid is really important for energy production in all tissues, including the brain, as well as really important for creating the sort of the insulating protective layer of the white matter of your brain. It's called the myelin sheath. So lots of potential reasons why we see an uptick in memory loss as as time goes on. And what are some of the common misconceptions that you've come across about cognitive health? I think the biggest one I see with things like memory loss and really lots of different health conditions is that, you know, memory loss is part and parcel with aging. So this is kind of a guaranteed outcome for people. Right. And that's not necessarily true. We can see memory loss for lots of different reasons, including, as I mentioned, chronically high blood sugar, which is associated with cognitive impairment. It can actually damage the blood vessels that bring nutrients to our brain. Uh, We could see it be a consequence of, you know, chronic stress and elevations in cortisol. Um, And what we see uh, in the literature there pertaining to high cortisol is actually shrinking of some key areas of the brain that are responsible for memory. Areas like the prefrontal cortex, which is like, you can think about it as like your internal parent that's there for like planning, reasoning, um, and working memory. So kind of the information you're dealing with presently. And another area of the brain involved in memory, the hippocampus, appears to shrink in people who have been exposed to high levels of, of cortisol over, over the years. So, I mean, I know this is true, but from what you've said, it sounds like there could be some lifestyle decisions that we can make that can help with memory loss. Is that so? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see most conditions, including memory loss, as an indication that we've done either too much of something or too little of something, and to address and take a look at, are you doing the foundational things to support memory? So important. So some things just to build a good foundation for cognition over the lifespan, getting regular physical exercise, that does a few different things for blood health. One, it increases blood flow, so it brings nutrients to the brain. 
for the brain to use to help us focus and form new memories also helps with increasing insulin sensitivity, that hormone that helps get sugar glucose into the neurons, the functional nerve cells, as glucose is their preferred energy source. And exercise also seems to increase this chemical called BDNF, or brain-derived neurotropic factor, basically like miracle growth for nerve cells to create connections one to the other. So beyond the exercise piece, making sure that you've got a good social network. So friends, maybe a romantic partner, close relationships with family, what that helps to do is reduce cortisol levels. And as I just mentioned, chronically elevated cortisol or stress hormone associated with atrophy, shrinking of those brain areas um, that we know play a role in memory. You know, managing other things like blood pressure, cholesterol that could impact blood flow to the brain. And a really important basic is staying hydrated. Something like a 2% drop in hydration in the brain can tank short-term memory. So making sure you're drinking enough fluids through the day, uh, a really key foundation to to maintain mental sharpness and memory. Yeah, I mean, you were you were talking about having sort of a good social foundation. There have been so many studies that I've read recently about how social isolation can lead to cognitive decline. And, and that could be because of COVID or because, you know, your partner has passed or it could be that you have a loss of hearing and communication is difficult. There are so many ways that it impacts. Yeah, and it's it's so true. I mean, humans are social beings. Even those of us like myself who might be a little bit on the introverted side, yep. we still need our people time. And if you think about it in sort of an evolutionary context, for us to be alone in the world is actually inherently very dangerous. So it raises our level of those stress chemicals. So to have good social support and connection, a physical touch as well, which gives us a hit of that uh, stress-reducing hormone oxytocin, really important for mental health and for cognition. Let's talk about stress and anxiety and how that impacts memory. How can older individuals manage stress levels to protect their, their cognitive health? Yep. So again, first thing, make sure that you've got some people that you've got close connection to, whether that's friends, family, you know, even a counselor that you can see that you can at least have that open dialogue with. Exercise for so many people. Well, it's a short-term physical stressor in the long-term helps to reduce a lot of those stress chemicals like cortisol, for example. And then finding activities that you enjoy, and that can look really different for every everyone. Like for me, it's rock climbing, which for some people might be terrifying. Yeah. And yet for me is incredibly meditative because you have to focus on what you're doing in the present moment because if your mind starts to wander, you might fall and go boom. Yep. <laughs> you know, breath work, yoga, meditation, those are some of the common practices you'll see recommended, but really finding out for yourself what helps me feel calm, what helps me feel relaxed, and that can look really different for each person. For me personally, getting a good night's sleep certainly impacts uh, my ability to think the next day. What are some of the strategies to improve sleep quality? No, I'm glad that you touched on sleep because I missed that one as one of the foundational pieces. Sleep is so important for helping us with insulin sensitivity and, and high levels of insulin and the inability to get glucose into the brain. 
can impact memory. Plus, we have this system, you might have heard of it and some of your listeners as well, called the glymphatic system. Mm -hmm. Uh, The cerebral spinal fluid that bathes our brain, the volume, I think, increases by something like 30% overnight to help flush away all of the debris that accumulates during the day so that after a good night's sleep, our neurons can, our nerve cells can communicate one to the other. So sleep is of paramount importance in people who are chronically underslept. So not enough hours or a lot of broken sleep. It's one of the risk factors for developing dementia. So some basics to optimize sleep is to try and have a consistent sleep schedule. I think most of your listeners know we've got a 24-hour clock, our circadian rhythm. So genes that turn on and turn off at consistent times, assuming that we've got consistency around meal times and in this case bedtimes. So in order for your body to know when to start producing the sleep hormone melatonin, we have to go to bed at reasonably the same time, you know, plus or minus 15 minutes. Try to have some sort of bedtime routine that's relaxing. So that could look like reading a book, taking a bath, maybe doing a guided meditation, a little light yoga to sleep as a, you know, it's rest. And so we want to be in the state that favors rest. So in that relaxed state, trying to avoid any bright light exposure in the hour before bed because that tells your brain, hey, it's still daylight, which means don't produce a lot of melatonin right now because the sun's still out. Make sure your bed's comfy. We spend like a third of our day sleeping, so make sure you have a comfortable bed, that your bedroom's dark, that it's reasonably cool. Um, Those are some of the foundations to supporting sleep and trying to get somewhere between seven to nine hours a night as well. Yeah. So one of the things I like to do, I'm a puzzle guy and I do crosswords all the time and and I find like exercising the brain, neuroplasticity uh, certainly helps, you know, it's all like a little mini workout for the brain. Are are you, are you on board with that? (laughs) You and me share a fondness for puzzles because I do all of the puzzles. I do the jigsaw puzzles. I do the crossword puzzles. I do the Sudoku's. One of the things about puzzles, while they can be great, our brains are really adaptive. So if you're just doing the same type of brain puzzles over and over again, what that means is we get really skilled at doing crossword puzzles, but that doesn't always translate to good memory for other activities. So what I would say is just have a lot of variety in terms of how you stimulate your brain. So a little bit of crossword puzzles, and then maybe some reading, and then maybe learning a new language, right? So variety and constant challenge seems to be a bit more effective than just doing one type of brain activity. Okay, so let's shift gears and talk about diet, which, you know, certainly plays a crucial role in in, in cognitive health. What are some brain-boosting foods and habits that we might be able to employ to prevent memory decline? Absolutely. So kind of first and most critically is making sure you keep your blood sugar in good working order. So try to avoid, you know, highly refined grains, lots of white sugar, you know, high fructose corn syrup, things like that, because that high blood sugar is actually toxic to neurons associated with neuronal death. So try to choose whole grains, low sugar, maybe more of that ketogenic style of diet. Beyond that, getting in the omega-3s that we get predominantly from fatty fish, but from algae and even from plant-based sources, they're really important both for modulating inflammation. Chronic inflammation can damage nerve cells and contribute to memory loss. And one type of omega-3 DHA is a really important structural fat, so it actually helps with the building phase of, of our brain. And then foods that are just brightly colored, because those bright colors, whether it's blueberries or blackberries or red beets, that means that there's a lot of antioxidants present in that food. 
and antioxidants similar to omega-3s curtailing inflammation antioxidants help to reduce oxidative stress and oxidative stress um, is another process that can damage neurons so lots of variety lots of bright colors low sugar low processed foods and making sure we get lots of omega-3s in okay so if we're not getting everything we need from our diet are there supplements or herbs that have shown promise in supporting cognitive function the list is long in terms of supplement options, so I won't bore you with all of them, but maybe touch on a couple of key ones. So the first one, again, those omega-3s, which we'll get in most abundance from fish oil to help reduce inflammation, to help build a healthy nervous system. Some herbs that can be beneficial. Um, it's an Indian herb called Bacopa uh, monieri, which... Uh, is antioxidant, helps to protect neurons from damage, and also seems to play a role in increasing one of our main neurotransmitters, so nerve connection molecules called acetylcholine that's involved in in memory. So Bacopa seems to be really uh, beneficial to, again, helping support cognition memory. Lion's mane as well, which I think we might have talked about back yep. when we did a conversation about mushrooms, so lion's mane, an antioxidant, it's got some vitamin D, which helps to reduce inflammation, also seems to bump up nerve growth factors, similar to BDNF, it's like miracle grow to help create more connections between our neurons so that they can talk more effectively one to the other. And then a couple of nutrients that are involved in making acetylcholine, so something called citicoline, as well as uh, choline or phosphatidylcholine. It's sometimes known as lecithin. We get lecithin from, uh, I say, plant seeds and animal seeds, so from egg yolks, as well as from nuts and seeds. And that choline is a building block for acetylcholine, and that's one of the key neurotransmitters um, associated with the formation of new memory. Okay, we have time for one last really quick question, and that is, with the growing interest in cognitive health, we're seeing increase a number of products on the market. How can consumers ensure that they're purchasing a high-quality supplement that's safe and effective? Yeah, so, I mean, I've got my go-to brands as a professional, but if you're going into, you know, a health food store and wanting to make best decisions, you want to look for some sort of certification, like an ISO 17025. What that tells you is that product has been evaluated by an accredited lab to make sure that what's inside the capsule or the powder is what the manufacturer says is there, and they're also testing for you know, purity and potential contamination. And of course, there's tried and true brands, but if you're not familiar with what brands are best, look for an ISO 17025 certification to let you know that what's on the label uh, is actually what's inside the product. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, it was a pleasure. It was great to talk to you again. That was Dr. Colleen Hartwick, ND. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss your personal energy management on The Tonic. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. 
Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Joseph Gibbons is a full-time professor at Humber College, where he holds exemplary faculty status. He has 20 years of experience as a professor, exercise physiologist, health and lifestyle coach, and mental health first aid instructor. His mission is to help people overcome life obstacles that impede their journey towards optimal physical, mental, and spiritual health. Welcome to the show, Joseph. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you for the invite. So why did you set out to write a book about health and wellness? There's like eight guys billion of them. (laughs) I know, yes. Well, it's funny. I actually didn't set out to write a book on it. I started doing research because I noticed that my own personal health was starting to degrade. And it was very confusing to me. I've been working in the health and wellness industry for, for many years, and it seemed like I was doing everything correctly. I was, you know, following all the best diet advice, you know, sleep. I was doing everything I could, and I couldn't understand why my health was continually suffering, physically and mentally. And so, you know, in part of my role at Humber is, you know, researching. And so I would desperately research to try to figure out why I had fatigue, why I had brain fog, why I had inflammation. And then it wasn't until kind of years later that I kind of figured out the one thing that I was missing. And that one thing for me was rest. I continually looked at my body as this endless well I could keep going to and drawing resources from whenever I wanted. Because one of the things that was my Achilles heel was work. I was addicted to work. I was addicted to productivity. And so all I did was continually research, you know, how I can continue this overworking lifestyle, you know, without sacrificing anything. And it wasn't until I found that missing piece, you know, of rest that all of the other things, the supplementation, the nutrition, the sleep were able to finally flourish. And I was able to finally have a trajectory of optimal health. When you speak of rest, you're not just speaking of sleep, right? You're speaking of downtime as well? Do you know what? I, exactly. I actually had to reframe the word productivity for myself because I always looked at if I'm not productive, then I'm not useful. So I needed to change the word productivity from just being output to also being recharging to whatever that is for people. You know, it could be proper sleep hygiene. It could be, you know, taking a rest day, taking a mental health day, you know, just anything that can get your battery, not from 0% to 5%, but trying to get it to something where you're sustainable. And I had spent my life overworking and that became part of my paradigm, part, part of my identity. And that was something that took a lot of work to try to overcome and reframe the word productivity and change my whole paradigm about how I view the world. Yeah, I was a commercial litigator for 20 years before I got into health and wellness. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, my patterns of rest, you know, I had bigger problems with nutrition and and exercise as well. But I, I think making the changes I did sort of saved my life. 
What do you believe is the biggest health concern affecting people today? Is it, is it the lack of rest or is it something else? It's obviously, as you know, it is uh, multifactorial uh, depending on people. But what I would point to as one of the biggest issues, uh, and then for everybody, there's going to be a different reason why it's fatigue. Mm-hmm. You know, fatigue, when people are tired, it is hard to get motivated to do the things you know are going to make you feel good. You know, when you're tired, it's hard to do chores or to do work or to be productive or to eat healthy or to get up early and exercise. And so when I work with people, one of the first things I try to do is figure out what can we do to increase your energy? You know, and it's just we look at, you know, a big motto of mine is progress equals happiness. A lot of times people want to get to the finish line too quick, but we need to celebrate along the way. If I can get you week over week, you know, one or two percent more energy that's going to really start to build momentum for you. And for some people, the fatigue could be what they're eating, right? It could be, you know, what they're eating is causing inflammation or they have a food sensitivity they don't know about. Or it could be they think that their sleep is good because they're getting eight hours, but I really recommend people, you know, they don't have to be overly analytical, but I think people need to track their sleep at a bare minimum to figure out, you know, how can we increase the amount of deep sleep that you get, restful sleep. So for everybody, it's going to be a bit different, and that's one of the things that I I try to do in my book is I try to get people to be really introspective. You know, it's a very large book, but there's a workbook within it where people actually create their blueprint for sustainable health and happiness, for their optimal. You know, that's something that I, you know, I really try to get people is to step back because oftentimes our lives are expedient. You know, we feel like we're going a millimeter in every direction. You know, our culture celebrates depth over breadth. Sometimes you need to pause and really reflect on the decisions that you make or, you know, questioning, you know, your paradigm or or how you view the world. I think understanding what health changes you can do that are sustainable is actually a lot harder than it sounds. Yeah. You know, I'm 57, so I kind of have it down now. But my life today is much different than it was in my 20s and 30s, just in terms of responsibilities, you know, as a young parent versus, you know, verging on being an empty nester. You know, you reach a certain stage in your career and you can sort of carve out more time because, you know, in your 50s, you're at a different stage of your career. I mean, I'm, my career is still it's changed and I'm still building. But I think most people are looking towards the finish line of their career in their 50s. You know, I, I'm not sure how much building they're willing to do in their 50s. And that mm-hmm. and that sort of edifies you know, what you're capable of doing on a day-to-day basis. But like when, yeah. pe- when people ask me, you know, how do you, how do you lose weight? Well, you know, there's tons of ways to lose weight, for example, but how do you keep the weight off? That's really the trick. It's not about losing weight. It's about sustaining your weight. Yeah. And, that, and that's a whole different kettle of fish. And I think you're saying yeah. the same thing vis-a-vis rest. Like what is sustainable rest? What does that look like for you as an individual? Right? Exactly. Yeah. No, you're, you're hundred percent right. It's, and, and that's why it's called, you know, it's discovering optimal. Everybody's optimal is going to be different. You know, I used to kind of go through life as if almost treating my body like a machine and like I was a robot, like I could go through. Uh, and that, that was part of my Achilles heel was I actually, I spent decades repressing my emotions, not thinking that there was any actually repercussions from that. And so for me on my journey, to discovering what an optimal life looks like for me, something that's sustainable for me. I had to uproot a lot of unpleasant things, you know, in terms of, you know, why I choose, you know, overwork or why I, that's how I believe that I am 
going to be valuable in the world. And so everybody's optimal looks different, both on their, their capabilities and what they're able to do, also what they want out of life. And so that's a big discussion at the, the, the start of the book is, you know, trying to help people first increase their energy because, you know, without energy, it's really hard to get motivated to do anything. And then to really get deep into figuring out what you want you know, and not waiting too long before you ask those questions. So although people are individuals and their result or their answer maybe look different than than others, I presume there are sort of maybe not universal, but commonalities to the types of impediments for people to find where their energy comes from. What are some of the impediments that you see that most people have to get to this point where they know how to recharge their batteries properly? Well, the biggest one is, there's quite a few, but if we're looking at the biggest, where I would start is I would look at what they're eating. So obviously the fuel that people are putting in their body, Mm -hmm. um, the best teacher is experience. And so, you know, you need to think about if you don't feel good, you need to be reflective of what you did in, you know, the hours or the days preceding that, you know, so you need to be very reflective as you go through the book. So if you didn't sleep well or you did sleep well, just reflecting on that because, you know, as you say, everybody is different. We're all unique. Our physiology, our makeup is different. And so we need to treat everybody individually. But like you said, there are some universal truths. And one of the biggest things that we would look for is how can I increase your energy starting with analyzing your sleep? Okay. There are so many different, you know, sleep monitors that you can take now and they're fairly inexpensive, but see what's happening with your sleep. And then let's have a look at your diet. And then when I'm working with people one-on-one, typically I always have them go to their doctor and get what's a a complete blood count to see if they're lacking anything because maybe they don't even realize that they're iron deficient or B12 deficient. That's beyond the book, but when I'm working with people, and I, I encourage people to do that, to go to their doctor to find the sources of their lack of energy. Because too many people, you know, we we turn to exogenous substances thinking that caffeine is going to continually help me get out of this hole, this tired hole I'm in. And it's, as you know, the more caffeine that you have, the more you need to sustain that until your adrenal glands are exhausted. So your book, if you could wish that people had a takeaway point, what do you think the key takeaway point is, is from your book? That progress equals happiness and that there is a path to more happiness, more energy, and more fulfillment in life. I think we get just get caught up in our day-to-day of going through, you know, driving to work, getting home, flipping on social media, watching television, you know, and that's great if that's the life that you choose, but there is more fulfillment out there, and there is systematic ways that you can implement to increase your energy and your health. And that's part of the book is, you know, I studied everything from ancestral wisdom to the latest in 21st century science, trying to figure out all of the different things that have been proven to work time and time again. So it's not it's not just what I've done in my my journey. It's what, you know, what research says and what, you know, people from generations ago have done to boost their health. One last quick question. If people are interested to learn more about your book, uh, Discovering Optimal, where should they go? So a couple of places. The, the first place would probably be my website. You can go to discoveringoptimal.com. On there has, you know, all the information about the book, also information about my social media channels. So on Instagram, I'm Optimal Seeker, as well as I have a blog that I populate trying to just, you know, boost the information. You know, basically everything that didn't make it into the book, 
I still, you know, I think it's valuable info that I want people to have access to. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. Thank you, Jamie. That was Joseph Gibbons. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss water safety on The Tonic. Real self-care means tuning in to what your body needs. If you're feeling overwhelmed, CanProv Women is a good place to start. Whether you're looking to reduce stress or anxiety, improve sleep, balance hormones through peri and post-menopause, or just feel better daily, our comprehensive formulas are designed to support your individual health goals. Your body, your health. Visit canprevwomen.ca to learn more today. Imagine a healthier and happier you. Hi there, I'm Dr. Quidro Karamantang, head of the ICU at the Ottawa Hospital. Every day, I see how important healthy habits are. And that's why I've created a course that could change your life. Do you want to lose weight, feel happier? I've got a few pointers to share with you. So why not take my course and give it a try? It's risk-free with a money-back guarantee. Visit 28dayreboot.co. That's 28dayreboot.co. Let's make a change together. Welcome back to The Tonic. Your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Barbara Morangello is a clinical psychologist, professor at the University of Guelph, and a Canadian Institute of Health Research-funded researcher. Her research focuses on understanding the factors that lead to injuries and motivating people to make safer, more informed decisions to prevent injuries in children and adolescents. The doctor works closely with community organizations who share these goals to implement these prevention programs on a larger scale. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? Thank you. I'm doing well. So I thought it'd be interesting to bring you on the show because it is really hot out and a lot of people are trying to beat that heat by going in the water. And I can tell you back in the day, probably couldn't do it now, but I was a lifeguard or I was credited to be a lifeguard. I had my bronze medallion and I could see... Some of the people trying to get cool in the water, but maybe weren't playing safe. So do you think you can help us with that today? I hope so. How prevalent are drownings in Canada? They are sufficiently frequent that we as injury prevention researchers focus on them and worry about them. Um, The thing about drownings is they occur throughout the life cycle, just for different reasons Mm -hmm. and different locations, but throughout the life cycle. And what are the risks associated with water-related injuries? Like if it isn't drowning, like what else, what are the risks? I would say a lot of the risks relate to not having a crystal ball and knowing exactly what you're getting into, right? So if you're in the ocean and a riptide occurs, or if you're in the lake and it suddenly drops off, or if you're playing next to the pool as a young child, wearing all your clothing and your shoes and you suddenly fall in, you know, it's really hard to anticipate all of the situations one might have to deal with. So that's always a challenge which we try and prepare for, like having children wear, you know, life jackets and and not be close to the pool edge and things like that. It's also that we tend to overestimate our abilities sometimes to keep ourselves safe or our children's abilities to keep themselves safe. Or we overestimate as a parent our quality of supervising the child. So we think we're really carefully watching and just periodically looking at our phone. But in fact, we're looking at our phone more than the child, right? We don't realize how quickly drowning occurs, particularly in young children. It can be a matter of 40 seconds. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you as as somebody who, you know, I had my bronze, I was acting as a lifeguard for a condominium pool. So not a lot of kids, but you can kind of see 
People frequently overestimate how skilled they are at swimming or, you know, what kind of strength they have for it. I would add in, it's probably not as relevant in the summer, but, you know, you can fall in the water really in any season, right? And, and you know, yes. there, there might be hypothermia if, if it happens in, in yes. winter, you know, if you fell through the ice or if yes. you're canoeing on a big lake and the weather swells and all of a sudden it isn't just that you're in the water, but you're panicking because maybe your canoe's overturned or your boat's overturned. Exactly. Uh, and those types right. of issues. Like I also used to be a sailor and I remember, you know, being affixed to the boat with a trapeze, which is kind of like a wire that attaches to a harness and getting trapped underneath the boat when it turtled mm. in the middle of a storm. And, you know, you can be freaking out. And, you know, if you were just in the water and it wasn't like a trauma situation, you might be fine. But if you're worried about sort of being lodged under a boat connected by a wire, that's like another issue. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, that's always a consideration when, you know, I work a lot with parents and children in injury prevention. And one of the factors we try and encourage parents to think about is, you know, your child might be an amazing like swimmer in swim class, right. but when they've fallen into the water unexpectedly and it's freezing cold and they're wearing their clothes, you know, they're, they're going to go into panic mode and maybe they're not going to be able to really call on all their skills in that moment to keep themselves safe. All right. So we've identified the dangers. We probably scared the hell out of a lot of people. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about some of the things we can do to prevent, you know, these bad outcomes. So where would you start? Well, certainly, you know, it's important like not to swim alone, right? So there's at least other people aware of what you're doing and what the risks are, maybe even providing some input uh, to your helping to make smarter decisions. For young children, I mean, regrettably, a lot of the statistics show that it's just inadequate supervision in the moment. So, you know, the supervisor might not be present, you know, they've run into the house or something or turn their back for a minute to barbecue and children drown so quickly. Sometimes supervisors are present, but they're really distracted. I mean, phones have really, you know, for as great as they are, they're also um, a real challenge sometimes for keeping children safe. Yep. At the same time, you have a phone out. And the other thing is, you know, a lot of parents sometimes use a minor, you know, like a, an older sibling to look after younger one. And we sort of have a double problem then of if something were to happen, you have the older one panicking and the younger one panicking. And, you know, the older child might not have the strength in the moment, might not have the skills in the moment. So for children, a lot of it comes down to, you know, keeping them properly supervised and, and wearing a life jacket, of course, is, is the best protection at any age, right? I mean, for adults, a lot of um, drownings happen, you know, off boats. Sometimes there's a lot of alcohol involved. They're not wearing life jackets. I mean, I always find it really interesting. You'll see family photos and the children always have life jackets on and the parents do not. Right. It's almost like, well, nothing will happen to me, <laughs> you know, but I'm keeping my child safe. But often what parents don't even realize or grandparents is is that children are looking at them and they're thinking, oh, when I get old enough, I won't need a life jacket anymore, right? So they're sort of modeling a belief that is actually not going to keep that child safe when they hit the teen years or the young adult years. Yeah, also, like, it's probably a good idea for adults to wear a life jacket because if, for example, they're on a boat and there's a capsize or, or an issue, you have to take care of yourself first so that you can stay calm and then help your kids. So you better make sure that you're okay. And I, and I think a lot of adults probably overestimate their abilities. Maybe they were swimmers 
in their teens, but they probably haven't, you know, swam many lengths, you know, as they get older and they probably don't have that strength anymore. Like, I know I'm not the swimmer I was when I was in my teens, for sure. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, right? We're always much more optimistically biased, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, You know, or maybe we were great swimmers, but now we're, you know, 20 pounds heavier and, you know, haven't really done, you know, a lot of lap swimming to be able to sustain ourselves, right? If we had to in the middle of the lake. Yeah, you know, I remember I I used to work at a summer camp and there was always a buddy system, right? Like, so you were responsible for your buddy. Do you think that's viable or do you think that's a bit of a risk? I think it can go both ways. I mean, it depends on the competencies of each. I think mostly, you know, the benefit of a buddy is that, you know, you're not alone. You have someone else saying, don't do that. Right. <laughs> or someone else being able to go and get help, right, if yep. needed. So it's not going to be a guarantee to secure your safety, but it certainly fits with the recommendation of not swimming alone. So, you know, my mother always used to tell me, don't go swimming until, you know, like if you've just eaten. Is that an old wives' tale or is there some legitimacy to that? I'm not actually aware that that is a thing, to okay. be honest. But to the extent, you know, there's a lot involved in, you know, swimming a distance, right? right. Or swimming in rough water or in a riptide situation or, you know, getting yourself from the bottom of the pool to the top and then to the side, right? There's a lot involved. So, you know, if you just had a big meal, I could imagine that there's going to be more challenges to doing that than if you're, you know, feeling light and, you know, agile and, and ready to go. You know, also... There's a big difference between swimming in a pool and, let's say, swimming in a lake or an ocean, right? So if you've never been to the ocean, you don't want to swim with your eyes open unless you have, like, goggles. And if you're not used to swimming in a lake, it may be murky and you may not be able to touch the bottom or there may be jagged rocks and you might want to wear swim shoes or something like that. Do people turn their minds to that and do they see that, the risks that are involved in swimming in an unfamiliar environment? I can't really say that I'm aware of you okay. know, whether that's really been carefully looked at. I do think that, you know, the more uncertainty, the more optimistic we probably go yeah. to be, which is probably not a good thing, right? So, I mean, that's what I would think that, you know, that just adds to the likelihood of getting your judgment wrong, right? Okay. Are there any other precautions that you want to end off the interview with? Anything else we should know? I think maybe the only thing I might mention, because it is relevant uh, to babies, you know, babies often drown in bathtubs, surprisingly. They drown very quickly. And I do think, you know, it's worth just reminding people that, you know, when people are drowning, they're not calling out. (laughs) They're not waving. They're not coming up and down three times. Like, their lungs are filling and they're going down. It happens very quickly and they drown silently. And for babies, I think sometimes, you know, parents or grandparents use bath seats to help them stay upright in a bathtub and and save their back, if you will, which is, you know, a very good thing as long as you're with them 100% of the time because babies drown in bath seats because they slip through or they turn over or things like that. So just, I mean, that would be one thing I would caution very specifically to um, babies and, and bathtubs. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. My pleasure. That was Dr. Barbara Morangelo. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss your vagus nerve on the tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Real self-care means tuning in to what your body needs. 
If you're feeling overwhelmed, Campro of Women is a good place to start. Whether you're looking to reduce stress or anxiety, improve sleep, balance hormones through peri and post-menopause, or just feel better daily, our comprehensive formulas are designed to support your individual health goals. Your body, your health. Visit canprevwomen.ca to learn more today. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Dr. Greg Hammer is a professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, a pediatric intensive care physician, a pediatric anesthesiologist, and the author of Gain Without Pain, The Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals. He's a member of the Stanford WellMD Initiative and is the former chair of Physician Wellness Task Force for the California Society of Anesthesiologists. He's been a visiting professor and lecturer on wellness at institutions worldwide and teaches gain to medical students, residents, and fellows at Stanford. Welcome to the show, doctor. How are you? I'm well. Great to be with you, Jamie. So we've discussed the mind-gut axis a little bit on the show before, but you're going to focus on the vagus nerve. So why don't we start at the beginning? What is the vagus nerve and what role does to play in maintaining equilibrium in our body? Jamie, we have an autonomic nervous system. So our nervous system can be thought of as divided into several different roles. But the autonomic nervous system consists of the parasympathetic side or parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system. And these two systems, when in balance, regulate heart rate, uh, have an effect on brain function, on gut function, on the eyes, pretty much on every organ. So the sympathetic nervous system, as most people understand, is the fight or flight side of the autonomic nervous system. So when that gets activated, our heart rate goes up, our blood pressure goes up, our blood sugar also goes up, and lots of other things happen to various organs in our body. When the parasympathetic nervous system is activated, all those things are tamped down. So our heart rate is reduced, our blood pressure goes down to safe levels in general, not always. Sometimes people pass out because their heart rate gets very slow. The main nerve in the parasympathetic nervous system is the vagus nerve. So we can talk about the vagus nerve as sort of a proxy for the entire parasympathetic nervous system. And again, that has regulatory effects on pretty much every organ in our body. So is it silly to ask, you know, how the parasympathetic nervous system is impacted by the vagus nerve? Or are they one and the same? Or is it a little more complicated than that? Well, the vagus nerve is sort of the principal nerve in the parasympathetic nervous system. So it is a a subset or part of the parasympathetic nervous system. So we could talk about the vagus again as sort of a proxy for the parasympathetic nervous system as a whole. Got it. Okay. Why is it that one's parasympathetic nervous system is such a key player when it comes to stress reduction? That's a great question. You know, not all of the mechanisms are well worked out, but there are ways that we can intentionally activate the parasympathetic nervous system or intentionally activate the vagus nerve. And we know that the result is that, as I said, our heart rate slows, our blood pressure is reduced, our blood sugar goes down generally safely, and there are improvements in something called heart rate variability, which is a sign of cardiac health. There are improvements in brain function, particularly executive function, decision-making, etc., and a decrease in stress in general. 
And as I said, again, the, the mechanisms are not completely worked out. We certainly understand the mechanism of the vagus nerve or vagal effects on heart rate, for example, because there are nerves that go to the sinus node, which regulates heart rate when the heart rate is being normally regulated. And there are vagus nerve endings that go to the sinus node and also sympathetic fibers, which do the opposite. So like most systems in our body, Jamie, the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems are in balance. And one is doing one thing, one is doing the opposite. And the balance is what determines our resting heart rate or our excited heart rate, et cetera. So although the mechanisms are not all worked out exactly, we do know that uh, vagal activation results in improvements in our cardiovascular function, our executive function, and a decrease in stress. When you're talking about those impacts, are you talking about in the moment, or are there long-term ramifications to how that system works and stress that might be chronic or or long-term? That's a great question. It is uh, something that happens in the moment. So when our vagus nerve gets activated, those changes in the heart rate, for example, take place. So That can be a momentary sudden change, and there's something that you may have heard of called a vasovagal response, and that's when the vagus nerve gets activated excessively, momentarily. Our blood vessels dilate and people can faint sometimes. So if somebody stands up quickly and they faint, that's a manifestation of a vasovagal response, or sometimes if they get frightened, paradoxically, the vagus nerve can be activated and they can faint. So that's a momentary vagal activity and response. But as stress in general, when it becomes chronic, has all kinds of harmful effects on our physiology, long-term increase in vagal tone or activation of the vagus nerve has beneficial effects over a long term. In other words, we can decrease our stress by intentionally activating the vagus nerve with, by virtue of activities we can discuss. And this actually counteracts some of the adverse effects of stress, which uh, include stress on the heart, stress on the brain, elevations in blood sugar that may lead to diabetes, etc. So there are so many adverse effects of chronic stress mediated through the sympathetic nervous system that are counteracted over a long term by the parasympathetic nervous system. Okay, so you alluded to the fact that we may be able to trigger the vagus nerve and do the work of counteracting the parasympathetic nervous system. So that's right. If that's true, which is really interesting, what are some of the things that that our listeners might be able to do that might be able to help them? Because it sounds like that would be pretty good if you could do it. Yeah, well, I think that the way that I practice doing that myself and the way I teach it as part of the GAIN practice, which is a a morning meditation practice that can be done in as little as three minutes. It starts with focusing on the breath and intentionally slowing down the breath. So get up in the morning, we open the blinds, we do our morning hygiene, we find a comfortable place to sit, we close our eyes, and we focus on our breath. So we slow the inhalation through our nose to a count of three, we pause to a count of three, And then we slow the exhalation, letting go without effort to a count of four. So into a count of three, pausing for a count of three, exhaling to a count of four. And if each of those counts are one second, then the breathing cycle is 10 seconds, three, three, and four. And therefore, our breathing rate, our respiratory rate is six per minute, since there's 60 seconds in a minute. When we breathe at six breaths per minute, we get all of the benefits of vagal activation, the uh, increase in 
our heart function, heart rate variability, increase in our brain function, increase in blood flow to the brain, for example. So this is something that we can do anytime. We're walking down the hall, we're feeling stressed, we're meeting with our boss. We can go to the focus on our breath, slow it down, and activate our vagus nerve and our parasympathetic nervous system. So that's, I think, the most accessible way we can intentionally activate the vagus nerve. Okay, so again, that focus is on the moment, right? So if we're feeling stress or if we're trying to activate the vagus nerve, that gets us in the moment where we're physiologically triggering the system and and making changes to our body. But what about the long term? Is there a larger impact that this practice can help with? Yes, I think so, Jamie. I think that if we practice the gain meditation or any breath work, breath-based meditation, or just a daily practice of focusing on our breath for several minutes at a time and then throughout the day when we recognize we're experiencing stress, the more we do this, the more it becomes sort of automatic. In other words, you know, it's like Pavlov's dog. Pavlov rung a bell and fed the dogs repeatedly until... The dogs associated the bell with food, and then just ringing the bell made the dog salivate, even if they weren't presented with any food. So this breathing exercise will lower heart rate, respiratory rate, etc., and make us feel better. So the more we do it, the more automatic this conditioned response, if you will, becomes, where we slow our breathing, we get the benefits of the increase in heart function, brain function, a decrease in stress and all of its manifestations. And, you know, we find that we can just pick this up anytime. We're driving in a car, we realize we're tense, we're gripping the steering wheel, etc. Go to the breath. And the more often we do this, the more prolonged the benefit becomes, just as with meditation in general. But this is something that we can do that only takes, you know, a minute or two. We can do it repeatedly throughout the day and and the benefits become more and more long-lasting, I would say. As someone who works out regularly, I can tell you, like if I used the same weight for, let's say, an exercise like a curl, eventually the returns diminish, and I would have to go up and wait, for example, or do more reps in order to improve. Is it the same with these types of exercises? Is there diminishing return, and we have to do more and more? Or does this type of exercise pretty much trigger it indefinitely? I think actually it's the, almost the opposite of diminishing return, Jamie. I think it's actually increasing return. So, you know, the more we do this practice, the more we find that when we're feeling tense, we sort of automatically go to this focus on slowing our breath and get these benefits. And I, I actually think the benefits are more and more enduring over time. So I, I, I get your thing about working out. I'm I'm also uh, an exercise fanatic, and you do have to kind of surprise your muscles and change right. things, yeah. change the way you do things. But I think with the breath, this is a very enduring response, slowing the breath, activating the vagus nerve, getting all the benefits of parasympathetic nervous system activation. I think this is very enduring. I don't see it extinguishing or you know, having diminishing returns. I, think, I really do think it's the opposite. The more we train ourselves to do this, the more automatic we do it, the more often we do it, the more that our stress reduction becomes uh, longer lasting. If people were interested in in following this advice and wanted more information, where should they go, doctor? Well, you know, I think specifically, Jamie, with regard to the vagus nerve and parasympathetic nervous system, I would just say do an online search. You know, put uh, vagus nerve or parasympathetic benefits, and you'll get a number of articles that are really geared toward the 
lay reader and you know there's a lot of information there's information on cold therapy on putting ice over your face or getting into a ice cold bath etc which also activates the vagus nerve so there's a lot of information that's very accessible that's out there fantastic thank you so much for coming on the show today my pleasure jamie anytime Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Colleen Hartwick, N.D., Joseph Gibbons, Dr. Barbara Morangello, and Dr. Greg Hammer. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The July-August issue is now available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.